Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. Well, hey, we're going to jump into our scripture this morning that Lindsay's going to be teaching from. So if you have your Bibles or or phone, if not, it's okay. It'll be on the screen. Um, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 32. And so in verse 22, it says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back in the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. This is the gospel of Christ. Thank you. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, for this room and for these people. I, uh, yeah, I just ask you to come. Would you be with us? We believe that you're with us. Would we feel your presence? Uh, pray that you would give us the courage to look inside ourselves at things you want to refine or expose or renew uh, inside us to lead us to greater freedom. Uh, And I thank you for the uh, joy of doing it together. So I pray that uh, as a family, we would come before you uh, open-handed and expecting uh, what you might have for us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, All right. So last week we started a new series. Uh, It's on our podcast, and you can get that anywhere that podcasts are if if you missed us last week. Um, It was just sort of... uh, an introduction for our, I don't know the word other than vibe, over the next few weeks. Um, uh, essentially what we did is we talked about how we hope for the next few weeks to put ourselves in close proximity uh, to Jesus, to be so close, in such close proximity, that we would be covered in the dust that comes off of his sandals. Um, this We talked about how this is what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, uh, to uh, be close with him in a way that allows us to be with him, to learn from him, uh, to not just believe what he said, but to do uh, the things that he did. 
And so what we're going to do is we'll just look at different stories over the next couple of weeks of Jesus. And and then we'll just kind of dissect them to see what we can glean from them or take from them or how we can be nourished by them. Um, But then also not just to fill us, but also in order that we could be sent out um, for the kingdom of God on mission. Um, We've really, over the last few weeks or months, been talking a lot about trying and doing in the kingdom, and those are good things to talk about. Uh, We Try is a huge word for us around here. So we talk about trying, we talk about doing. Um, So I guess you could say that this series is sort of the why of that. Um, Johnny always tells me you're supposed to start with why, um, and so we're a little backward on this, but this is, this is the why. Why do we do? Why do we try? Um, and Jesus is that reason, spoiler alert. But um, So let's just jump into our story today that Chad just read us, uh, our verses, uh, where he started, they start with the phrase immediately after this. And so it's important when, um, you know, I get some complaints because I make people read way too many verses on stage. Uh, and so uh, that it, but I struggle to like take verses out and then just read them all alone. So it helps to put, I think, verses into context. Uh, and so the immediately after that Matthew is talking about here are two significant events in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Um, one is that they're, they're kind of coming off of the grieving, uh, the death of John the Baptist and the grieving of the death of John the Baptist. And the second thing that's just happened is um, that Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's been preaching in front of a huge crowd. They have no food, if you know the story. Uh, And then Jesus feeds uh, 5,000 people with loaves and fish, and it's amazing. Um, But this is important, I think, to, um, to know the immediately after because it places Jesus and the disciples in the context of a really emotionally heavy season, but also like a socially and relationally heavy span of time. Do you know these times? Uh, This for me was May. I don't know how your May was, but I looked at Daniel, I feel like every day of May, and I was like, I am exhausted. (laughs) Like May is exhausting. And I was, I was still grieving the death of a friend that passed away in uh, January. I, um, and then at the same time is every social event feels like it happens in May. Every school event definitely happens in May, usually at the same time, I feel like. Um, every game, every race, it was just a lot of things. It was, um, so I don't know when your May is, but, but essentially when we put ourselves in the context of the disciples today, they are, are coming off of an emotionally heavy and a socially or relationally heavy time of life. Uh, And Matthew tells us that um, Jesus insists to his disciples that they take a break from people by telling them to go get on a boat and go to the other side of the lake. I love that. I actually need that insistence. I have friends in my life who will be like, you need need a break. Like, you need a break from people. And that's what Jesus is doing. Take a break. Go to the other side of the lake. And then uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning, something crazy happens. Uh, Jesus, he starts walking toward them on the waves in the middle of a storm. Uh, some context there for us. We think of the ocean or the sea for the most part. Uh, we think of rest and relaxation and vacation. Maybe you think of little drinks with umbrellas on them. Um, but for a first century Jewish person, the sea was not a place of rest. So it's interesting that Jesus is like, go on the sea uh, across. That, that wouldn't have necessarily been a context of rest uh, for them. Um, there are fishermen on the boat uh, in the disciples, but, but as a people, they the Hebrew people aren't a seafaring group of people. They were 
uh, ground people, earth people. They were goat people or sheep people. Um, and so the sea to them was not their place. The sea to them was filled with like mythological and psychological and theological mystery. It was filled with darkness. And it was filled with fear. One of these, there was a literal ghost story at the time um, that the Hebrew people believed that the ghosts of the dead would walk on the waves during the middle of the storm, which is a really interesting context for what we read today, right? It, it kind of helps inform the story. I read a scholar this week who said uh, when Jesus comes walking that the disciples believed in ghosts, so when they looked out, they saw a ghost. That was their first, their first reaction. But Jesus who's aware of their fears and aware of the ghost stories, he speaks up and he says, wait, wait, don't be afraid, it's me. Uh, the Greek uh, term for that is I am. He, he claims to be himself in this moment. I am. And then Peter responds and Peter does what Peter often does. He talks. I love Peter. Uh, psychologists tell us that there are three reactions to like scary or threatening situation, uh, fight, flight, and freeze. You're aware of these? I think we should add a fourth and it's talk. Do you, <laughs> anyone else, like, uh, you come across an overwhelming situation and so you talk incessantly. This is my response. Maybe that's what fight is. I don't know. Uh, Stevens, can you help me with this later? Um, maybe that's what it is, but it's like, uh, that's, that's what I think should be added. I feel like that's Peter. He's freaked out, so he just talks. Uh, and he says, if it's you, then tell me to come to you. To do, essentially, if it's you, then, then tell me to come do what you're doing and walk on the water. Uh, we talked about um, uh, being a disciple and apprentice of Jesus is, is walking the steps, doing what he's doing. And, and, and so I think Peter's calling him on it. Like, you, you say we're your disciples, so tell me to do what you're doing. And then uh, what had to be a surprise to everybody on the boat, but probably especially Peter, Jesus says, okay, come on. Sure, come on. And then, I mean, what was Peter going to do? In this moment, some of y'all are like, he could have stayed in the boat. And you guys didn't take double dog dares. So that's why you say that. But honestly, it's probably the right thing. Like, you don't read any scholars who write about this passage who are like, you know what was wise? Stepping out of the boat. No one lauds that as like, this was amazing. And he stepped out. Uh, wisdom was probably staying in the boat. But it feels kind of like a dare or an invitation into something wild or less boring. And so Peter, he takes a step out of the boat and onto the water. And then he takes another one, and another one, and then all of a sudden he is walking on the dang water until he's not walking on the water anymore. And Matthew says uh, that the storm, the wind, and the waves, they grab Peter's attention. Ever been there? And then he goes down. Ever been there? <laughs> he says, save me, Lord. And Jesus does. He does. He reaches out his hand, and he, and he grabs Peter. And then Matthew tells us that the disciples are in awe. Matthew says they, they worshiped him saying, you really are the son of God. And that's a really important thing to note because this is the first time in the gospel of Matthew where the disciples called Jesus the son of God. God has called Jesus his son in his baptism, but the disciples have not. They've never used this terminology before. And this is so fascinating to me. Uh, we talked last week about the call of Jesus as rabbi, that he, he called the disciples and he said, come follow me. And we talked about how on the shore of Galilee, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they dropped their nets, they dropped their lives, they dropped everything to follow him. 
And I think it's important and fair to say that they did that to follow a rabbi. They dropped their nets to follow a, a teacher, a rabbi, to take on his yoke, his worldview, his, his view of the scripture. They were willing to follow him as teacher. But it is this story where they call him Lord, Son of God. The Son of God that they believe to be living, a God that they believe to be living and active, they called him his son. And so for scholars, this, this uh, declaration of Jesus as the Son of God is part of uh, the proof that even um, really like doubtful scholars use to, to, the, to prove the validity of the scriptures. Because the likelihood of a first century Jew to risk the heresy of calling something God that was not Yahweh and then recording it for history and posterity uh, from a scholarly perspective is really unlikely. It wouldn't have happened unless they believed it was true. But it's here. They recorded it because they did believe it was true. And so it's here for us thousands of years later to come back again and again and again to. And I'm grateful for that because I do. I, I come back to this story again and again and again because to me it feels like the human perspective or the human experience or at least my experience. Have you ever in your life um, thought that you were supposed to do something? Or maybe you would even say Jesus told you to do something. And you go, maybe you didn't even want to do it. Uh, but you go and you do it and then, and then you're right in the middle of it. And the wind gets wild and the waves get crazy and things start falling apart and everything is like falling off of its hinges. I heard a preacher this week talk about how they wish that God was into microdosing uh, Because uh, only two of you laugh because only two of you know what that is. Um, but basically, they was like, why does God not microdose suffering? Like a little bit at time over and over. But that's not, that's not how it works. It is like everything falls apart at one time, right? And, 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 and it never happens like that. And so one thing goes wrong, and then the next thing goes wrong, and then the next thing goes wrong, and then anxiety creeps in, and you're in this cycle. But then often in there, there's this moment of rescue, like Jesus on the water. But when it comes to Jesus, rescue doesn't always feel like rescue in the moment, does it? Sometimes it feels like a ghost. But he's, there's Jesus and there's rescue. And he, and he looks at us and he says, don't be afraid. The storm is real, but there's no reason to be anxious about it. And then he, he invites you deeper in and further and closer, not just to be in the boat, but to step out of it. And then, and then sometimes we do in life. We take a step out of the boat. And then we see the storm. Maybe the one you just got out of or the one you're still in the middle of, the one you've been working on your whole life or a brand new one, and anxiety swirls and it demands all of your concentration and suddenly what, feel like walk, felt, what feels like walking now feels like drowning again. And this cycle to me feels like life. It feels like my experience of living, this cycle of doing and crashing and doing and crashing, the cycle of anxiety, following and thinking that I'm on the right track, and then some kind of madness or suffering makes me anxious and afraid. And though it might be the human experience, it's, it's not what the scriptures call our most full and free life. Uh, Rich Fayados is a pastor in Queens that I love, and uh, he says this really directly. Misty, I think we have a slide for this one. He says this. He says, the interior examination of anxiety is a powerful practice to engage in. To be anxious is to be human. But to be regularly shaped by anxiety diminishes our humanity. It may feel like the experience of being human to be anxious, but the cycle of anxiety diminishes our humanity. 
I think that's because uh, another pastor I love, John Mark Comer, he says, when fear and anxiety leave the show, lead the show, love gets regressed. When in our lives we panic and we scramble for control, uh, those are the moments we negate love. Fear and anxiety, uh, these are our primary emotions. Uh, researchers tell us that there are only four primary emotions. Happy, this is good for me because I really struggle to put words on how I feel. Happy, sad, angry, afraid. So when I'm in therapy, just to give you a, a zoom in, it's a very regular thing for my therapist to say something like, yeah, yeah, I'll be talking about, you know, I feel this or this person did this or blah, blah, blah. And then she'll say, yeah, 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 what's underneath that feeling? And I hate that question. One, because I don't know. That's why I'm here and I pay you. So tell me what it is. <laughs> Two, I hate that question because it feels like every freaking time it's fear. Every time for me, it just, it lays there. Most of the time, what I'm feeling in my life is actually fear. It, it lays in my life uh, like this panicked grasp for control. And then the worst part is I find that it's always the same fears. Like the same ones over and over again. A fear of being alone, a fear of being misunderstood, a fear of letting someone down. Or honestly, what happens a ton and is most embarrassing is I'm terrified of looking stupid. And that controls so much of what I do. You may relate to these, or you probably have your own fears that are lying underneath the surface. Fear of the future, or fear of instability, uh, fear of money, fear of being disrespected or abandoned, fear of disorder in the world, PTSD. We all have different things lying below the surface, and they're real. These fears, they are real. They are real feelings. And we live in cycles of them all throughout our lives. But as real as they are, they still aren't offering us life that's full and free. And that's what I'm super interested in. Full and free life, uh, it, I think part of that is learning uh, the art of non-anxious presence. But not just learning how to be non-anxious presence. It's also learning how to be loved by a non-anxious presence, which is sometimes more difficult. Uh, Non-anxious presence is a term coined by a brilliant rabbi and family therapist named Edwin Friedman. Um, if you, this is a side note. If you're a manager or a boss or uh, a leader in any capacity in your life, he has a book called Failure to Nerve that is phenomenal. So I'll, I'll buy it for you. If you tell me that you lead something, you email me and I will buy it for you. I think it's so good. So, um, But in this work, uh, Friedman, he talks about how our society um, has progressed in so many ways. We've progressed in enormous ways technologically and economically and, and all of these ways. Um, but he says we have a myth of progression because for all of the progress in our society, all of that has come, he believes, at the expense of our, our emotional and then our social and relational health. Rather than uh, as a society progressing toward emotional and social health and wholeness, Friedman argues that we have regressed into a culture marked and defined by anxiety. And honestly, he wrote this in 1997 before social media, and it's like, oh, it got worse. I don't think he's wrong. Like, in my lifetime, uh, two things, I think, have marked our society with, um, with uh, anxiety. One is a 24-hour news cycle. What on earth were we thinking? And two is social media. We have seen cultural anxiety rise, not fall. And then you add the events over the last two and a half years of 
pandemic and racial tension and a crazy election and researchers, I read the statistic this week, researchers estimate that anxiety has increased in the last two and a half years by 25%. That's enormous. In fact, uh, when asked, almost 30% of Americans have experienced in the last week the symptoms of anxiety disorder, sleeplessness, restlessness in your body, mind, or heart, shortness of breath or temper, panic attacks in the last week. And if those statistics don't sound like pretty enormous to you, then your scale is off. Uh, I was listening to a pastor talking about this, and he says, uh, this does not show an aberration. It doesn't show like a, a departure from the normal. This shows an epidemic. We have been marked by anxiety. Like wind and waves, a storm and a boat, anxiety is on the rise in our culture, and it's on the rise in us and me and you. It's why we're so quick-tempered. It's why we numb ourselves any chance that we get. It's why we struggle to sleep or eat or sleep too much or eat too much. And for Edwin Friedman, the the antidote to this cultural regression is really simple. He calls it the gift of non-anxious presence. A person who can step into an anxiety cycle uh, or an anxious situation, into turmoil or problems, and with calmness uh, bring what Brene Brown calls a soft front and a strong back. Softness, to acknowledge the difficulty and fear. A non-anxious presence is not a pain denier and is not like a toxically positive person. But a soft front to acknowledge this is real, but a, a firm, strong back. Which means that the anxiety or fear or trouble or doubt or whatever the problem is doesn't stick on a soul level. And I'm not sure there's anyone better in all of time to look at when we talk about non-anxious presence than Jesus. Jesus, he had so much to teach us about what it looks like. Uh, And that's the dust I want on me. I want the non-anxious dust of Jesus to powder my body and my heart and my brain and my soul. We've uh, kind of looked at the story story of of Peter and the waves and the wind from the disciples' perspective and Peter's perspective. But I think it would be really interesting to look at it from Jesus' perspective. The Jesus who walked out on the storm, who knew the ghost stories and walked out anyway. Jesus who invited Peter to come. Jesus who didn't sink when Peter sank or because Peter sank, but who pulled him up and who calmed the storm right afterward. I think one of the things that makes this such a perfect story to look at Jesus as a non-anxious presence in is what happens to Peter when he starts sinking. Matthew tells us that Peter gets distracted by the wind and waves and the storm. But I think it's really, really important to note that Jesus doesn't. He doesn't. And when Peter starts to sink, I think it's really important for us to note that Jesus doesn't. He doesn't. Therapists call this uh, differentiation. It's the ability to join someone in their pain and in their struggle and in their fearful and in their anxious without entangling your own heart and mind and soul in the process. A A podcaster I love calls it letting someone have their own trip. Again, Jesus, he doesn't deny the wind. He doesn't deny the waves. He doesn't deny the sinking. Instead, he stands firmly on the water and he reaches out his hand and he lifts up his friend out of the waves. Uh, One of the other ways that we see the non-anxious presence of Jesus in the story is in his playfulness. Uh, Edwin Friedman says uh, that playfulness is one of the antidotes of anxiety. He says, uh, and this is true, he says anxiety's major tone is seriousness 
It's content-oriented, and it's diagnostic. That's the voice that anxiety uses. And that's true for me. I, I know this might seem silly, but when I lose something or I feel misunderstood, which are two guaranteed cycles of anxiety for me, like you have never seen someone's voice get so serious as when I lose my keys. Ha ha, it happened yesterday, <laughs> just in preparation for today. I was alone and like lecturing my own self. You know, there was no one to talk serious to, so I was like, get it together. <laughs> me. The other one is when I feel misunderstood, the diagnostic tone, when I feel misunderstood is when I will guarantee that I'm going to use a voice that I think sounds smarter than your voice. 100%. I hear it. I hear my voice change. It happens. That's the voice of anxiety. But non-anxious presence, it has access to playfulness. In fact, Friedman goes as far as to say that we can judge anxiety levels by our loss of capacity to be playful. Think about that in your life. Where is it in your life that you have lost the capacity to be playful? It's something that pops up in the story with Jesus and Peter. When Jesus reaches down his hand to Peter to, to pull him up, he talks about little faith. And in English, that sentence that, that Chad read, it sounds so demeaning, like he's scolding Peter, like, why don't you have any faith? But in the original language, that is not the connotation even kind of. Um, in the original language, it's a pet name. It's like Jesus is calling Peter little faith. Uh, in the message version, uh, Peterson chose the, the nickname Faint Heart, which not not your favorite nickname, but it's got this play, playful tone. It's not shaming. It's not anxious. It's pff, little faith. In Jesus, we see non-anxious presence. We see soft front and firm back. We see uh, in a sea of, of, of trouble. We see playful. We see untouched inwardly by what's swirling around him outwardly controlled Jesus is controlled only by the father not by where the wind was blowing or the waves were crashing it's full and free life it's an example of what's possible for us for freedom in our own hearts in our own lives for the good of and for the good of others that we share our lives with becoming a non-anxious uh, presence is uh, part of our job as Jesus followers it's part of our work uh, this is important to note. Becoming a non-anxious present does, does not mean that you will never feel fear or anxiety. It doesn't mean that. Rather, it means learning how to put them into their proper place and into their proper order. Uh, Missy, I think I got a, a, a slide for this one too. John Mark Comer says this. He says, becoming a non-anxious presence means learning to fear God above all. And all the other fears, they go below that and begin to disappear. Then fear becomes a signal from your body for you to navigate life and negotiate with rather than a trauma tyrant to oppress or repress you. Gosh, I hate that phrasing, and I love it. A trauma tyrant to oppress or repress you. That's what it feels like. Becoming a non-anxious presence doesn't mean fear doesn't exist. It means learning how to deal with it and put it in its proper place in a way that leads to love, in a way that leads to flourishing for us and those around us. Rather than a lifetime of bowing to the tyranny of oppression or bowing to the tyranny of repression from fear. One last thing. Uh, I said uh, that a non-anxious presence was the antidote of anxiety at the beginning. Um, and part of that is learning how to become that, how to become a non-anxious presence, a differentiated person with access to playfulness, learning how to not bow down uh, to fear and anxiety, anxiety as a tyrant. And it is absolutely all of those things. But there's a part B to it. 
Uh, I would argue that if we have any hope of attaining that kind of fullness and that kind of freedom, uh, then part of the quest of becoming a non-anxious presence means learning to open ourselves up to the love of Jesus in a greater way. It's about learning how to see our lives as, as like a container for the depth and love and life of Jesus that he wants to pour into us. And that sounds really nice. And it is. But it's also maybe the most vulnerable part of all of it. Like it's one thing to acknowledge that we, like every other American, are anxious. And it's another deeper thing to do the work to, and I think we should, to do the work to discover the unique ways that anxiety plays out in our own hearts and our own lives. We should do that work. But it is another level of risky to allow the love of Jesus into those spaces. I found something this week that uh, has very quickly become a lifeline to me in this place. Honestly, I almost didn't share it this morning because it felt a little too vulnerable or sacred or holy. I don't know. Um, but it comes from a, a frequent friend of ours here at Springbrook uh, Vineyard, especially over the summer, St. Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius uh, was a Catholic priest. He, he started the Jesuit movement. Uh, and he, in a lot of ways, is the modern father of spiritual direction and spiritual formation and is a hero of mine. Um, but Ignatius, he has this term uh, for the Jesuits that he calls indifference. Um, and that's how he, he, it's a Spanish word that scholars translated indifference. So I don't know if it's the best word. Freedom might be a better word. Um, I think the French, French mystics translate the word um, as detachment. Um, Christian psychologists or thinkers, they call it yielding or differentiation. These all kind of mean the same thing. Um, indifference, it's the practice of non-anxious presence. And this is what he says. He says, the simple idea of indifference is this. Because we are deeply and unimaginably loved by God, we do not need to control or manipulate the people, circumstances, or events in our lives in order to live happy and at peace. Have you read it again? Because we are deeply and unimaginably loved by God, we do not need to control or manipulate the people, circumstances, or events in our lives in order to live happy and at peace. It is the practice of opening yourself up to love so deeply uh, that your hands literally open from their panicked grasp for control. It's learning to see life as it actually is, but also to see God's love as it actually is. It's learning to yield ourselves to the kingdom of God by handing over the control that we cling to because we think it makes us feel safe or happy or one of those. When Jesus uh, looks at his disciples and says, do not be afraid, he's not saying, don't worry, nothing bad will ever happen to you. He's saying instead, do not fear because no matter what happens to you, you rest in my love. You will be held by my love. You live under the cover of the goodness of God no matter what. You don't have to bow to the tyrant of fear or anxiety because you are not alone. You will be held by me. You do not have to control or manipulate your way into my goodness. You're already there and you're always already there. Ignatius says it like this. In everyday life, then, we must hold ourselves in balance before all of these created gifts insofar as we have a choice and are not bound by some obligation. <laughs> Did that kind of make sense? In everyday life, we have to hold ourselves in balance to however we're not obligated by things. We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. 
for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. Our only desire and our only choice should be this. I want and I choose what better leads to the deepening of God's life in me. I want and I choose what better leads to the deepening of God's life in me. So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, The band's going to come up. Uh, We're going to kind of take a collective breath together. We call it Selah uh, here at the Vineyard. Um, And I want to kind of do a practice from St. Ignatius. This was the thing that felt a little too vulnerable uh, to share. Um, But um, I want to share his prayer. This is his prayer of indifference. This is his means of getting to that non-anxious place of opening himself up to the love of God. And if you're like me, um, maybe you're thinking two things about maybe this whole sermon and definitely this prayer. One is, why does she talk about anxiety so much? Uh, She must have real problems. True. (laughs) True. I'm not anxious. Why are we talking about this? And to you who are not anxious, I would say, just wait. (laughs) To quote Curly from City Slickers, day ain't over yet. Or... Maybe it is that you find yourself uh, with fear, anxiety, or control, or agitation, or perpetual disappointment that is so tyrannical in your life that you're like, one prayer could never fix that. And to you, I would say, well, you could try. And you're right, maybe one prayer doesn't fix it, but one prayer said over and over and over and over again Daily, nightly, in the moment, when your eyes drift back to the wind and the waves, when you feel yourself starting to sink, that prayer becoming like a psalm in your life, that, that might. So here's the prayer. I'm going to read it through once for us, uh, and then we'll just let the room be quiet, and it'll be on the screen. Um, and also, it's going to be on our social media stuff tomorrow, or if you don't have social media, you can, don't feel like you have to like take pictures of it right now. I'll text it to you or email it to you if you uh, catch me and, and let me know that. But um, I think it's a really good one. So uh, I'm going to pray it for us, and then we'll just sit in the quiet, and I'll allow you to kind of do it in your own space, in your own time. And we'll just open ourselves up to the presence of the Spirit who wants to expose anxiety, but also wants to... Uh, treat it with love and playfulness and hope. We'll open ourselves up to the non-anxious presence of the Spirit. So this is from the first principle uh, and foundation of St. Ignatius. He says this, Lord, my God, when your love spilled over into creation, you thought of me. I am from love, of love, and for love. Let my heart, O God, always recognize and cherish, enjoy your goodness in all of creation. Direct all that is me toward your praise. Teach me reverence for every person, all things. Energize me in your service. Lord God, may nothing ever distract me from your love, neither health nor sickness, wealth nor poverty, honor nor dishonor, long life or short life. May I never seek nor choose to be other than you intend or wish. 